Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for another day of life. We're thankful that it's not raining. We're thankful that each person is here from literally all over the country and even other parts of the world. Lord, we know that you are working. We know that you are raising a movement of people who are wanting to get back to your original plan, back to the garden plan. And I just pray that today we can encourage and inspire, we can empower, or that you can do all those things through us, and that um, there will be more people in the garden because of this time that we spend here today. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I feel like I have the best part of the seminar, and that is why. Why should we do market gardening? Um, so I've entitled it, Have You Left Your Pot? This was something that the Lord just really hit. As I was thinking about this presentation, I was reading in the book of John, and something there really struck a chord to me, like, this fits about agriculture. Not just agriculture, it could be other things too. So why it's a blessing to be a market gardener. And I'm gonna share six things with you this morning. I've reduced it from another presentation where I did 12. So this is what I think are the most important, but certainly not all. So I'm taking my thoughts from John, sorry, chapter four, 28. The woman at the well. She comes to the well and she meets Jesus. And after they talk, um, the Bible says the woman then left her water pot. And I, I just, it just kind of hit me like, have you left your water pot? And what does that really mean? Have you left your water pot? And why did she leave her water pot? So to me, as I thought about it, the water pot represents just what she was planning to do that day. You know, so to me, the leaving the water pot represented, okay, what was, she, what was on her agenda for that day? What was she supposed to be doing? What were her responsibilities? Maybe not just for that day, but maybe for her whole, for her whole life. Um, she now had a burden on her heart. Let me back up and say that for our family, I consider we left our water pot when my husband and I left the academic world of teaching and started on a journey to know God's will. And that was, that was quite a process. And, but we left it because we had had an encounter with Christ that had given us such a yearning in our hearts for more. And we knew that the life that we were currently living was not going to reach that end goal. And so we left that water pot and we said, Lord, we're yours. What, what would you have us to do that we might know you, that we might raise our children to know you? Um, if you stay here for the marketing class, I'll introduce you to our whole family through a picture. We're blessed to have three of our boys here and two of them with their wives. Um, but we have others that aren't here. So. The woman at the well, she now had a burden on her heart, a job to do, and people to tell. That's, that's exciting. 
So she had a testimony to share. You know, I don't know how much we had a testimony to share before we left our water pot, but I'll tell you, our testimony has increased tenfold since we left our water pot. So then the message that she said was, come and see. Come and see what he's done for, for me. And so for us, our come and see has definitely been our farm. It has, given, it has been the vehicle for us to tell our customers, come and see what the Lord has done for us. Look at these amazing strawberries or look at these amazing vegetables that God spared when everyone else's crop might have been wiped out and the Lord just put his hand right over ours to give us a testimony to say, look what God has done. You know, at farmer's markets, when, our, when customers come by and say, your produce tastes the best. You know what we can say? Praise, Praise the Lord. These are prayed over vegetables. You know, we grow the same vegetables that everybody else does, the same, many of them the same varieties. But we can say, because of the farm, come and see, come and see. So six, six reasons that we think that um, market gardening, farming, is a wonderful thing for families. It's the perfect way to live in the country and yet work the cities. You know, we hear so much about, well, we've got to work the cities, we've got to work the cities. But listen to this quote from a letter that Mrs. White wrote. The cities are to be worked from outposts, said the messenger of God. That sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? It's not even, they can be. They, they are to be worked from outposts, said the messenger of God. Shall not the cities be warned? Yes, not by God's people living in them, but by their visiting them to warn them of what is coming upon the earth. So we're in, the, our closest big city is Nashville. We are there in the summertime twice a week. That's a cross for us to bear to have to go to Nashville twice a week. But you know what? That's where the people are. And that's where our ministry is. The second reason is because it is a very wholesome environment. And I will say this, 20 years ago when we started farming, it was a lot more wholesome than it is now. But now, right in your pocket, you have every, every sin that can be seen in the city. You have brought it now to the country setting. So it takes more effort, but still, the message is clear. I urge our people to make it their life work to seek for spirituality. Now. How many of us really can say that is our goal? We are seeking for spirituality. Um, Christ is at the door. This is why I say to our people, do not consider it a privation when you are called to leave the cities and move out into the country places. Here there await rich blessings for those who will grasp them. By beholding the scenes of nature, the works of the Creator, by studying God's handiwork, imperceptibly you will be changed into the same image what a promise i tell you that's encouraging because i'll tell you why it's encouraging because at times i felt like our life was bringing out the worst the worst stuff in my character i didn't even know it was there you know you go through hard times you just think ah this is bringing out the worst in me but god's promises are sure 
and he is working. So first, we want to reach the cities from the country. Second, it's a wholesome environment. Third, ooh, hardship and privation are a safeguard. Oh, how many of us would like to say, oh, I just love hardship and privation. It's so great. Um, I sometimes tell myself that um, even now. So listen to this from Desire of Ages. The parents of Jesus were poor and dependent upon their daily toil. He, Jesus, was familiar with poverty, self-denial, and privation. This experience was a safeguard to him. In his, in, in his industrious life, there were no idle moments to invite temptation. No aimless hours open, opened the way for corrupting associations. So far as possible, he closed the door to temptation. You know, that was our aim with our children, I'll be honest. We aimed to keep them so busy that they didn't have idle time. And when they did have idle time, it was, it was used in the out of doors. It was, I mean, it was a hard, I was hard pressed to keep my boys inside for any purposes. Um, I mean, well, of course they, they would ditch school at any opportunity. Dad needs us, mom. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of hard work. What a blessing. What a blessing, especially for young men. I think that's why the Lord gave us four boys, because <laughs> we were on the farm, and that's what boys need. Um, it closed the door. Did it, did it shut the door and make it impossible for temptation? No. You can't, in this world, parents, it's really impossible to make it so that there's no temptation. But at least we were together, and... Um, we did what we could to give a little hardship and privation, although I, always, I mean, I felt like the Lord gave it to us, and I said, you must know we need it. So hardship and privation added to country living and added to the wholesome environment. Okay, the fourth one, it builds faith and trust. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, Shall he find faith on the earth? You know, when we left teaching, I will, I will say that it was one of our main goals was that we recognized that our faith was, was not really strong like we wanted it to be. Our trust wasn't strong. And I, it's, it's an embarrassment to say that it's taken years. I mean, 10 years into it, I remember having such a meltdown and saying, I do not trust you, Lord, after all you've done for us. I mean, anybody who can't relate to the children of Israel just has never been there because I have no judgment on them. I've been there, and you just think, I'd never forget what you've done for us, Lord. And then something hard comes, and, and you forget. But with agriculture and with farming, let me tell you, every new crop is an opportunity for faith. Every new crop is an opportunity for trust. Um, every crop failure, you know, you plant and you lose half of it, you just plant again. You don't wait around, you don't wallow, you don't, you just keep going. And you say, Lord, I, you know what we need. You know what we need. 
and we trust. Number five, spiritual lessons abound. And this is so true. Um, sometimes John and I have said when we've heard people talking about still the, the faith versus works, you know, how does that work? Righteousness by faith versus, versus works. Um, the balance, we say just get in the garden. It's crystal clear. You know, if you don't do your part, you will never get a crop. And we have learned that the hard way. Um, so it's so easy to see. I can, you know, I can remember times with our boys and our daughter too, when they were um, doing different things. Like I remember one in particular, and fortunately I don't really remember who it was, but somebody was gonna start tomatoes and they were gonna sell tomato transplants in the spring. And they had them in a little, at that time we, we didn't have a, a good way to start our plants in the spring, but we had these tiny little, um, I don't know what you'd call them. They were like little incubators. That's what I'll call them for plants. And they were in tiny little blocks that we were starting. And then they would take them from there and transplant them. Well, the thing was you have to take the lid off of that every day or the plants inside are going to get too hot. Um, even we were, we were starting them early, February probably. Well, the lid was not taken off and it was forgotten. And, you know, all those little baby plants died. Because when you're a farmer and you forget, you pay the cost. And it's the same spiritually. That's why the Bible is so full of remember, remember, remember. So, God's love is written upon every opening bud, upon every spire of springing grass. Um, our challenge is we don't always think about it, you know. But when we discipline our minds to think about it, um, there are so many lessons, you know. Just even here, while you're here, I want to encourage you, go outside and say, Lord, you know what? I've been inside all day listening to seminars. I need to just give me something from you. And it's amazing the things that he'll show you from nature. Test him. Try him and see if it's not true. Um, through the things of nature and the deepest... Through the things of nature and the deepest and tenderest earthly ties that human hearts can, can know, he has sought to reveal himself to us. So isn't that sweet? Through nature and through the deepest ties. So those are all, I think, personal reasons why market gardening has been such a blessing to our family and why I think God's people really should be doing it more. But the next one is the part where you, you reach out. And this is, to me, the most exciting. Because as the Lord feeds you, you always have something to give. Friendship evangelism. The world needs today what it needed 1,900 years ago, a revelation of Christ. Now, mind you that where those dots are, what's between these two sections is our theme for this year. I want to encourage you to read it from the book. It fits right in here. So this is the part afterwards. There is need of coming close to the people by personal effort. If less time were given to sermonizing and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. Now, I'm not here to tell you of all of the results that we have seen. 
But I believe by faith that in the kingdom, we're going to see the results because we have such close, deep and personal ties with our customers. And I wish I could tell you more about them. All of our customers, which usually is around 85, we might have two Adventists. One is grandma and grandpa. <laughs> the other is, you know, I mean, it's all just wide open. Lots of Christians, because we're in the Bible Belt, but lots of people who are very in the New Age sector, but who share so many things in common. And what you can do through friendship evangelism is wonderful. These are some of my sweet, I just call them my girlies. I have watched these little girls grow up from the time, um, well, they have three little girls. And when I first, when they first joined our CSA, um, she was pregnant with her second. So, you know, when I see these girls, when I have not seen them, they just run and hug me. And it's just a bond that is so sweet. And I will talk more about that when I'm doing the marketing section on CSAs, because that, that is really where it's at as far as evangelism and reaching people's heart and meeting them where they are. So that's just a little bit of the why why we should do our, our agriculture um, as a lifestyle and as a ministry. So as we go through the rest of the day, I don't want you to get too, too caught up in the numbers and the, the physical side of it. Yes, I mean, that's, that's a reality, but the greater reality is this is a tremendous way to not only um, do outreach, but to, to work with the Lord on the development of our own characters. I would encourage those who are over here, if you, the, the closer you can come together, the um, easier it's going to be for me to see you and, and uh, connect here. So just... Press together. That's what we're counseled to do, right? Um, you know, there's so much more Pam could have said about, uh, you know, I'll just mention something for the men and for the women. Um, you know, women, would you not like your husband to be in the most pure environment there is in this world. Um, I think all of you know the challenges and temptations out there in this world. And um, as, my, as Pam said, the garden is not free from temptation. Eve fell in the garden, so it's not free from temptation. But it's the most... Um, I mean, you're surrounded by the things God made. You're not surrounded by the things of man. And so as far as men go, I, I just, I can't encourage you enough. It's just, not only is it a pure environment, but it makes you feel like a man. You know, if you sit at a computer all day and come home and, 
and you know you're you're mentally tired but you're not physically tired and then it's hard to go to sleep and whatever you know whereas if you work outside all day man when you come come in you sleep like a log i mean you and and you feel like i accomplished something you know you can look out on your little dominion and you can see this is what i accomplished it's 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 amazing so anyway i could go on a long time on that but let's now look at the market gardening model what what are we talking about here and and i'm trying to use this term market gardening as compared to farming because if i tell people i'm a farmer you know they're thinking big tractors and combines and thousands of acres no i'm a market gardener so what is a market garden well, I'm going to say, and you know, there's, this, there's no definition of this, but I'm going to say that you're cultivating less than two and a half acres because I don't know of any market gardeners who can cultivate more than that and do it well. Most of the models I'll be sharing with you today are people who are doing an acre and a half or less. You don't need a lot of land. It's characterized by intensive beds and multiple crops per bed per year. I mean, this is where the planning comes in. You know, you're putting crops in and when they come out, boom, you have another crop ready to go in there. You've got your transplants ready to go. Um, it's not your plant corn and then leave the corn stalks up till the next spring and, and plow them under kind of thing. It's very intensive. It takes advantage of season extension. We're going to talk about that some. Um, actually, we have another session on Friday, I think it is, on growing through the winter. But very, very simple techniques that you can use to grow year round here, anywhere in the country. Um, you know, it seems like no matter where I go, people say, yeah, well, we can't do that here. Yes, you can. I know you can because there are people doing it. There's people doing it up in British Columbia, um, Northern Idaho, growing year round usually very diverse. This is something we learned the hard way, way back when we started. You know, we started as a strawberry farm and almost lost, well, lost more than our shirts. Um, so by diversifying, you know, every year you're gonna have successes and failures depending on the weather and the bugs, the insects and so on, but the more diversity you have, so you lose a crop. Well, you know, that's too bad, but, but you've got plenty of others that are going to make up for it. Now, I, I do want to just emphasize, this is not, I, I'm not trying to say everybody should go into market gardening. There's no one size fits all. If you have access to lots of land, if you inherited a thousand acres, and all the equipment, you know, go for it. That's great. I'm not going to try to downplay that. Um, 
But what I do want to help you to see is you don't need all that. You can, you can make a living on an acre or less. And there's plenty of people doing it. Not only do I have a personal passion, you know, everybody has their own personality. I like, I like to feel like I'm in control, you know. And we, at one time, we were up to doing about seven acres of growing. And I did not feel in control. You know, you can't keep seven acres weed-free. It's very hard to keep an acre weed-free, but it's, it's possible. Um, and so I, I really have this strong feeling that your market garden, your garden, your farm should be a place that people love to be, a place that brings peace. And if you've ever been in an out of control garden, you know it's not a place you want to be. It's like, oh, I don't want to go out there. I'll do better next year, right? Let's plow it under, till it in. The beauty of a market garden is you can, you can be in control and you can keep it like the Garden of Eden, a place where people come and say, wow, this is amazing. I want to do this. Well, we found most people really don't want to do it when they know the cost of doing it. Um, but at least it gives them a desire for something more. So I, I think that it, it fits very nicely with, and my wife already shared some of these things, you know, families working together. The beauty of, of this is that any age, you know, from 90 to two can have a job on the market, in the market garden. Um, you know, the little ones can, can carry tools for you or, um, you know, they can set the plants out. You mark out the bed and they set them out. Um, whereas on a big farm, you become dependent on outside labor and you lose the whole idea of families working together and being together. And it, it's just amazing how much bonding there is when you're up against the challenge. You know, there's a storm coming in and you've got to get something harvested before the storm hits. And you get the family together and you say, guys, we got to do this and we got to do it quick. Let's go for it. And then you accomplish it and there's this incredible feeling of, wow, we did it you know, together. Yeah, so we talked about those things. So here's, here's some of the advantages. This is our little bit of heaven here, or part of it, um, a drone shot. We actually live in that barn there at the bottom. And um, next to it is our starter house, our greenhouse. Actually, you can see we've got all our strawberries being propagated on the gravel pad next to the greenhouse. Then we have four movable tunnels. Those, 
those three tunnels right there are, are movable tunnels, three pads for each one. And then we have some, some, we've got 12 of these pads out in the field. And then what you're not seeing is we actually have three more large hoop houses beyond those fields there. So we're growing right now on about two acres. We'd like to, we'd like to, we're, you know, like I said, we keep shrinking and we'd like to shrink a little more if we could. But the point is the less you do, the better you can do it. So this idea, this mentality of, well, we made this much this year, so we need to plant twice as much next year is a faulty mentality. You've got to look at it, well, if we did less, we could do it better. I mean, I can guarantee you, if you plant a thousand tomato plants, you won't make that much more than if you planted 200 in a hoop house and took care of them properly. That's, uh, that's actually a spiritual lesson. You know the quote from Mrs. White where she says, if she was speaking to a farmer um, who was working too much, was not focused on the kingdom. And she says, don't you know that 20 acres with the blessing of God could produce as much as 100? So we figure one acre should produce as much as five, right? With the blessing of God. So it is a spiritual principle. Less land needed, less water needed. I think that's a bigger issue out here. I was talking to somebody yesterday who said they have one gallon per minute. I, I had to be honest and say, you know, I'm not sure you should think about market gardening. Because um, I'm going to recommend later on that I, I feel like 10 gallons per minute is probably minimal. Um, but I don't want to discourage you if you feel God calling you to it and you don't have 10 gallons per minute. You know, you can use drip irrigation, a lot of things. But anyway, the point is, if you're, you know, you don't need big center pivot systems like I see many places. You know, those cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, you don't need that much water when you're growing on so smallest space, less equipment needed. You don't need it. You don't even need a tractor. Um, some of the best market gardeners out there don't have tractors. Less stress needed. It's not so overwhelming. You know, again, you, you, you feel, you know, I, I should have a pointer, but our window, our bedroom window is on the side of the barn looking out towards those fields. And, and I love to, to get up in the morning and look out the window at my dominion. It's so nice when everything's under control. And I'm not going to tell you that we have no weeds. You know, we're, we're, still, it's, uh, we're still in the process of character development. But that's our goal, you know, and to be able to look out at that and have peace is a wonderful feeling. It's, it's, uh, it's a stress reliever. 
more people can make a living off the land. To me, this, this is a big passion of mine. You know, I hear so many people saying, oh, I'd love to do it. You know, I, I, I'd love to move out of the city, but, you know, I just can't afford a piece of property. And I, I don't have the, the resources to get into farming. Um, well, what if you only need to buy an acre and a half? Most people can come up with the money to buy an acre and a half. Um, so, you know, Mrs. White talks about the thousands who are living in the cities who, if they had a piece of land, could, could make a living. That's, uh, that's what we want to inspire you with. So now let's look at some keys to success. Intensive production. Um, again, we, we already talked about that a little bit. This is um, your, you know, the, the best market gardener that I know of out there right now, or at least the one that I'm trying to learn from is Connor Crickmore and, and Never Sink Farm. He's up in New York State. His beds are never empty for more than a few hours. As soon as a crop comes out within the day, there's a new crop in there, either direct seeded or transplanted. So that's kind of the, the gold standard. You, you can't afford to leave empty soil. Um, so it's very intensive, tight spacing, beds rather than rows. You understand the, the benefits of beds. I, I don't want to go into things that I don't need to, but beds produce a lot more per acre, per thousand square feet than just rows. Rows, you know, people started using rows when, when they started mechanizing agriculture with tractors or, and so on. But if you're not using tractors, forget the rows, do beds. And I, I think, yeah, a little later on, we're, we, the, the, the market gardening world has kind of standardized on a 30-inch wide bed. Those of you from outside the U.S., that's about 70, 75 centimeters. Um, and that was really Elliot Coleman's who, who standardized that. I mean, not that he was trying to, but he just started out with that. And so now there's a lot of equipment built for that and everything. High value crops. Joshua's gonna share with you um, in the next hour about high value crops. Keys to success, highly fertile soil. This is huge, you know, because you are, you are working that soil over time. It's really, if, to, to be totally honest, you're, you're creating a very unnatural system. You know, you don't have this high intensity um, planting in nature. And so you're having to supplement natural fertility by adding, you know, just recognize the fact you're taking a lot off this soil. It's coming from somewhere if you're not putting it in the soil, um, it's not going to be in your plants and your fertility is going to go downhill. So, you know, there's whole six hour sessions today on soil fertility. We can't get into that, 
but I just highly recommend getting your soil tested. Amend as recommended. Grow cover crops. If you're not, if you don't have winter crops on it, you need to have a cover crop on it. Don't just leave your soil bare. That's not doing anything. Make compost. Season extension, again, we've talked about that, um, but just quickly, row covers, floating row covers. Does everybody know about floating row covers? I tell people floating row cover is your dryer sheets, you know, that you put in the dryer, just big and unscented. Okay, so that's what floating row cover is. Now there's different weights. You know, the lightweight is, is very much like a dryer sheet. The heavyweight is more like a diaper wipe. So the, the heavier floating row cover is just large sheets of diaper wipe without the moisture. Okay. Um, so that's what row cover is, and it's amazing what that very thin piece of fabric does to temper the climate. So that's kind of your first level of season extension. Then you can do low tunnels. There's different kinds, little wire hoops that you support the, the floating row cover on, or you can use plastic over those low tunnels. And so it's very simple. Now, I will say that with those low tunnels, it's very labor intensive because there's a lot of moving sandbags. You got to sandbag it down. Otherwise, it, the wind's going to blow it off. Um, but it can be done. We have harvested marketable lettuce out of uh, a low tunnel um, with, with one layer of floating row cover and a layer of plastic when we had minus zero degrees Fahrenheit temperatures, marketable lettuce, minus zero. It got into the negative digits. We don't normally get that, but it does happen occasionally. Hoop houses is the next step after low tunnels. Um, and I define a hoop house as basically an unheated greenhouse, usually with just one layer of plastic. A greenhouse, if you've got heat in it, you want air inflation between two layers of plastic. And then transplants. Most people don't think about transplants as season extension, but it really is. It's a huge way to extend your season by starting things inside and putting them out. Okay, more keys to success. Efficiency. Um, this is huge. Using specialized tools, and we're going to talk a lot about that, different tools you can use. Um, this is huge, and this is something we've been working on recently, standardizing all our beds. Um, you, you saw in that overhead shot, we've kind of got this field that is, oh, I forget the mathematical term, not a rectangle, but a rectangle trapezoid parallelogram okay so that's what we have and for years we just had it divided into three sections and it was this funny shape 
And so our row cover had to go from this corner to this corner. You know what I'm saying? And it made things very awkward. And so in the last few years, and I'll give the credit to J.M. Fortier, um, the market gardener from Canada, um, we went to a seminar of his. I'd already read his book and everything, but my wife went with me, and it's good to have a wife. You want a wife um, to help you with this. But she said, why, don't, why aren't we standardizing all our beds? And I started, well, because of this and this, you know, our, our field is just because of the lay of the land, this is what we got to do. But as I started thinking about it more, you know, well, maybe we should. You know, we're going to lose some space at the top and bottom, but we've got plenty of land. We're not short on land. Um, it's been huge. Now, and, and we've continued fine-tuning it. Now everything is um, 30 by, uh, you know, like all our row cover and everything is 30 by 50. Our, our plots in the field are 30 by 100, so we just have to use two silage tarps or whatever. All our hoop houses are 30 feet wide, 50 feet long, or 100 feet long. So again, you know, irrigation, silage tarp, row cover, all these things are standardized. You know, figuring out how many plants you need per bed, it's all there and it's simple to just say, okay, we're doing two beds of that, we need this many plants. So I can't overemphasize this enough. Standardization of space and materials is huge because, you know, before we have this big pile of row cover. If anybody has any tips on how to store row cover, I'd love to know them. Um, we've tried all kinds of things, but you end up with this huge pile of row cover. It's like, okay, now we need a piece this big and you're pulling through it. Uh, no, that's not it. You know, it's, it's a huge waste of time. But now, and we're still kind of in transition, but now they're all going to be the same size. Huge. Work smarter, not harder. So these are more keys. Direct sales. Eliminate the middleman. You, you've, you've all probably heard the, the um, statistics that, you know, the average farmer in America only earns pennies on the dollar of his produce. It's ridiculous, you know, and, and of course with commodity crops, the farmer has no say in what he charges for his stuff. That's craziness. I want to be able to say, this is how much I need for it. You know, you want it? That's how much it costs. If you can't afford it, I'll teach you how to grow it yourself. That's our philosophy. We charge premium prices at the farmer's market. Um, we couldn't afford to buy our own produce. That's why we grow it ourselves. Um, but if you don't want to grow it yourself, this is what you have to pay for quality produce. If you can't afford it, we'll, we'll help you grow it yourself. And that's even better. Farmers markets, that's a great place to start. And again, my wife is going to talk more about all these things. Everybody know about CSAs? Yeah. 
Okay, just very quickly, uh, CSA is, is kind of a subscription model. Families sign up, subscribe to your farm for the season. And um, then they get a box of produce either every week or every other week. And um, there's, we really like that model. High-end restaurants are great sometimes. Um, we haven't had the best luck with restaurants because they tend to be, I don't know, there's a lot of turnover and they say they want it and then you grow it and then it's like, eh, that's not in now, you know, kind of whatever Martha Stewart or whoever says is the thing to grow. That's what, you know, everybody, all the chefs want to do. So it works for a lot of people. In fact, we have friends in our area that only grow for one restaurant. And, and that restaurant has actually invested in their farm, bought hoop houses and stuff for them. So if you can build that kind of relationship with a restaurant, it can be very profitable, very good. But we haven't had that experience yet. So I just made this note, this is definitely changing as more and more people get into market gardening, there's been a huge influx in the last five years of people getting into market gardening. My only regret is that Adventists haven't been a, been a part of that huge influx. Um, but there are thousands and thousands of small farms all over the country now. Um, and so because of that, because farmers markets, there's, you know, you may not be able to get into a local farmers market. They only take so many farmers and they may be full. You may be on a waiting list. So people are branching out and doing more wholesale. And, and that in many ways is easier because, um, you know, you're not having to sit at farmers market for hours and so on. But the downside to it is that you don't, have the same customer contact and that's really important to us so that's the main reason we haven't gone there okay i think this is the last key to success planning you know and this is what we'll talk about the last session know how much money you need to make um do you do you know what your minimal needs are you know if you're Thinking of this as a way of getting rich, I would tell you to go to another class because um, I'm not going to show you how to get rich. But um, you can sustain yourself. We're living proof of that. We've been market gardening for 20 years now and we're still here. So obviously, once you know how much you need to make, then you can figure out how much you need to plant. And then you, you got to figure out when it needs to be planted. And then you need to have a succession of plantings so you have a continuous harvest. And that is where your head starts hurting as you start trying to think about, you know, this, this uh, stereotype of the dumb farmer um, needs to disappear because market gardening is one of the most demanding and mentally challenging and physically challenging things 
that I think you can do. You have so many things that you're thinking about. It's, it's amazing. Because um, you're not just thinking about what needs to be done today, but you got to be thinking about the fact that if I'm not planting today, I'm not going to have anything to harvest two months from now. And so you're always having to think out there and thinking about next year and your crop rotations and on and on and on. It's, it's a lot to surround. And so we're not, we're not thinking we can make you market gardeners today, but we want to just expose you to it. So I love this quote, always tend the smallest amount of land possible, but tend it exceptionally well. You know, there's been this mentality in the U.S. for many years, get big or get out. That was what the Secretary of Agriculture said some years back. Um, and this idea that you need to get bigger and bigger in order to be profitable. Well, I would like to turn that on its head and say smaller can be more profitable. Do you know any big farmers that are making $100,000 or more per acre? You, you're not going to do it. But I know many small market gardeners who are making 100000 or more per acre. You need to think about this. At least one full-time worker per half acre. That's kind of minimum. So don't think that you're going to start... Um, after hours, keep your, your regular job and do an acre and a half market garden. It's not, it's not possible. Half acre per full-time worker. That's kind of my, my assessment. I mean, I've heard other people say that too, but, and, and again, we're talking, we're not talking about tractor farming. We're talking about intensive market gardening using mostly hand tools. Income potential of 100,000 plus per acre. I would strongly encourage you that if you're not within an hour's drive of a major metropolitan area, then you need to kind of, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but you need to kind of rethink it because the big cities are where the market is. Your little small towns, people aren't going to want to pay what you need to get for your produce. Um, of course, you know, cost of living can be less the further out you go. And, and there are ways to get around it. Again, if you feel God calling you to it and you don't live within an hour of a major metropolitan area, don't let me discourage you. But you may have to be more creative and do um, more shelf stable crop storage crops like garlic or something like that garlic is a pretty good money maker it can be um, good water source we talked a little bit about that you you got to think about your sun exposure you know do you have a lot of trees around what what kind of slope is it south facing in the northern hemisphere um, all these things are important. Good soil. Well, the good news here is for an acre or acre and a half, you can make good soil. 
you're basically making the ideal is you're making potting mix out of your whole garden. And you could do that on that small scale. Um, really amend your soil so it's just beautiful. Um, it needs to be fairly level. And then just, I think this is the last slide, 30 inch wide, wide beds, 100 feet long. That's kind of a standard that Jean-Martin Fortier, J.M. Fortier, the market gardener, kind of set out. It doesn't have to be 100 feet long, but it's really nice if it's something that can be easily, easy, easily divisible. Um, and because, you know, when you get your soil recommendations, it's going to be um, per thousand square feet or per acre. And, you know, it's really nice when you can just do stuff in your head. Okay, I've got a 100-foot bed. I've got three rows, 12 inches apart, so I need 300 plants per bed, right? Um, whereas if your beds are 47 feet long, it starts getting hard to do the math in your head or else you get really good at math one way or other pathways basically keep your pathways as narrow as possible that's wasted space you're going to have to cultivate it keep them as narrow as possible elliot coleman does 12 inch wide jm fortier 18 inches wide right now we have eight beds per block Eight beds fit in a 30-inch wide or 30-foot wide pad. So whether it's a hoop house or outside, they're all eight pads per block, either 50 feet or 100 feet long. Okay, that's it. So I'll take a couple questions and then we're going to take a break. I think you were first, and then okay, what it, what is major population? I would say. 100,000, but that's a bit of a random number, um, 100,000 or more. You know, Nashville, greater Nashville, I think, is a million. How high, as in raised beds? They, they really aren't raised beds. They're what Elliot Coleman calls sunken pathways. <laughs> because you're walking on the pathways, you're they get compacted, your, your beds you're using a broad fork on, and so they're loose. So, you know, we have used JM's model of, of raising them with a rotary plow, raising them up. But unless you have real issues with waterlogging, I don't think it's worth the extra effort. Unless you've got rock six inches down that you're dealing with, then you need to raise it. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.